Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm your host, Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Krista Thompson, Professor of Art History at Northwestern University. Shine is her second book, and it deepens her concern with diasporic and Caribbean visual culture. This book turns much of what has been written about the constraints of Scopic regimes on its head. I'll never think about bling in quite the same way. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Krista, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Well, thanks for your interest in the book. Can we get started by talking a little bit about your trajectory? I know this is your second book, and your first book was on photography in Jamaica. And so I'm wondering how you got interested in the Caribbean. Um, I am from the Caribbean. I'm from the Bahamas. Um, So the first book, um, which looked at Jamaica and the Bahamas, was really me coming to terms with some of the more predominant forms of representation that I encountered as someone who uh, grew up within the Caribbean context. And so I think as a young, um, then young (laughs) art historian, uh, I felt at a certain point that because I kept seeing a certain repetition of a certain type of iconography uh, across the region and across different forms, whether popular cultural forms like the postcard or contemporary um, or forms that were showing up within contemporary artistic practice that I really set out to understand some of the origins of a certain touristic imagery that just was so predominant within visual culture and art um, across the islands. So that project really began with me um, looking both at the Bahamas and Jamaica because they were two of the first islands within the Anglophone Caribbean to really embrace uh, tourism as a possible viable industry. And so uh, part of my interest within these spaces came from my own um yeah, my own ambition to try to understand the beginning of a certain visual imaginary of the Caribbean. Yeah, and this book really continues with the study of images and the exploration of them. And one of the things about the book is that as an object, it's really beautiful. So the pages are are nice and thick, and the color from the images really jumps out at you. And there's lots of just gorgeous images and really striking images Um, And it's wonderful because you spend a lot of time actually looking at and thinking through the images. And so I would like to start talking about the cover, actually, which is a work by Ebony Patterson, who you talk about in the course of the book. And so I'm wondering if you can just um, talk about the image a little bit as a way of of introducing the book and and maybe just tell us why you chose that image. Um, Well, the book is by the image on the cover of the book is by a Jamaican artist by the name of um, Ebony Patterson. 
And um, her work has actually been really important within my own thinking about some of these contemporary uh, popular practices and the way that they have shaped uh, studio art practice. Um, and so the image is this uh, work of hers that is drawing on the uh, video light phenomenon within Jamaica. And so in it, we see this uh, kind of painting in which there's a lot of gold that is used um, and this kind of dissolving atmosphere, which kind of feels like it's almost disappearing within the light that surrounds it, uh, which is so kind of intrinsic within um, thinking about video light as a phenomenon within Jamaica, which is this practice in which participants within the dance halls um, will really kind of compete to be within the light of the video camera. And so Patterson's work is really kind of picking up and trying to think through that particular practice within this, uh, within this particular work. Um, in the image too, the figures are this interesting uh, uh, example in which the figures are almost both in silhouette um, except for the instance of their kind of faces, which become uh, the kind of absence of light and become almost these white masks within the work. And so a lot of her thinking has really been thinking about these kind of performance practices and, um, and yeah, and that really goes to the heart of what the book is trying to do to think about kind of what kinds of subjects these photographic practices are producing um, and thinking about the way that they become registered within contemporary art practice. So the title is also really meaningful. Shine and shininess signify a lot in the book. How did you come to that notion of shine as really it's an argument? It is an argument. Um, I think that it was both um, looking at this notion of shimmer and shine, which was actually both a word and a visual effect that I kept seeing across some of the photographic practices that I was looking at within the context of the Caribbean and the southern United States. Um, but I also became really compelled by the historical figure of shine. Um, and shine was this figure that appears within kind of folk tales, uh, both within the African-American and Caribbean context. Um, but shine was known uh, as this figure who was aboard the Titanic when the Titanic was um, kind of taking on water. And because he was working in the bowels of the ship, the legend goes that he was really the first person to realize that this kind of shining uh, symbol of modernity and technology um, was actually kind of going down. And so in the legend, he goes to the ship's captain and he tells him several times that, that the 
Titanic is taking on water um, only to be turned away and, you know, told that, you know, oh, my boy, you, d- you don't understand. Like this is, you know, the height of modernity and technology. Um, and so the legend is that Shine is able to basically um, get on a small boat and start going out to sea by the time that everyone else realizes that the Titanic is going down. And they're a series of... Um, there are a series of people that want him to come back to rescue him, them, and they're offering him all of these different material things. Uh, but the end of the legend is that, you know, at the end of the day, um, Shine swam on. And so to me, I kind of take that um, story. And, and again, you know, in talking to artists that were working in the 1960s, like the artists working as a part of Afrocobra, um, they were telling me how important shine and thinking about shininess kind of was within their artistic practice, right? And so there's this whole um, early kind of thinking about uh, contemporary art practice and representing Black subjects in which kind of thinking about shine became important. Um, and it becomes important not only in terms of this legend, but in terms of this kind of broader perspective on what technology is, what its possibilities are, and what the limits of uh, kind of Western modernity, you know, is, and also what the perspective of the African diaspora kind of comes to bring to thinking about um, Western modernity and its, and its limits and its failures. It's a wonderful story, and it really does sort of brings together so many strands of the book. Um, and the book itself is divided up into four parts, right? So there's um, four different lighted Caribbean and diasporic practices. You have street photography in New Orleans and other places. You have video light, which you've already mentioned, in Jamaica. And then you have the prom entrances and the acts of being seen and being seen being photographed in the Bahamas, And then you talk about the visual practice of hip hop. And then you also talk about and you bring in the work of contemporary artists and their dialogues with those practices. So I want to talk more in detail about each of these. But I'm wondering if you can say something about how you arrived at these four practices. How do you how did you come to choose those to talk about it? How did you arrive at the geographic frame that holds them all together? I think a part of it was really based on my own location as someone who has uh, lived in different parts of the Caribbean and parts of the United States. And so the street photographs, for instance, uh, I started documenting while I was a grad student uh, in Atlanta. And as I mentioned in the book, at the time that I start documenting them, I have no clue (laughs) that I'm actually going to work on this material. Uh, But I had been aware um, just from a lot of my research in some of the earlier history of photography that Black photographic practices were just something that hadn't been documented and archived. So I started uh, informal interviews with some of the photographers that I started seeing in Atlanta in the mid 1990s and started documenting some of the uh, the photographic studios that they would set up 
And it was actually um, later as I started traveling more within the southern United States that I realized that this practice was not confined to uh, Atlanta, but that it was actually also in um, New Orleans. It was very big. It also appeared in in New York. It was also popular in Miami. And so I started uh, traveling. Um, D.C. is another place it was really popular. So I started traveling around some of the circuits that these street photographers were, were traveling um, and getting a sense of the larger kind of scope of this photographic practice, which was actually not confined to the U.S., but then also um, appeared in Jamaica, too. And so in almost every instance, these practices that were chosen were the most prominent uh, forms of kind of photographic um, kind of or lens-based practices that existed within these communities. And so if you go, you know, to any of these kind of popular venues within the Southern United States in particular, the street photographers are everywhere. Um, if you go to uh, Kingston, Jamaica, and you just look at the most popular practice, lens-based practice, it's video light. Um, if you go to the Bahamas, again, the proms and the spectacle that surrounds that has no other uh, equivalent. So on some level, it was dealing with the most popular, the most visible form of photographic and lens-based expression that existed within these communities. Um, and it also happened that each of these expressions were in dialogue with these other parts of the African diaspora. So whether it was the street studios, photography studios that are circulating um, across the Caribbean and the U.S., whether it's the video light and its technologies and what it's producing. that So the footage that is then circulating across the Bahamas, across the U.S., and more broadly, um, or the proms that are very much influenced by the visual culture coming out of the U.S. So in all these instances, it was really the most obvious and the most popular form of photographic practice within these communities. So, so let's start with the practice of street photography with the backdrops and this very performative, as a kind of performative public intervention. Wh one of the things that struck me is that your analysis had these tensions in it between visibility uh, in the sense that it takes place in the street, and that's really significant, and then also what you call, citing Ralph Ellison, unvisibility, which is about surveillance and control and those kinds of things. And how do you how did people getting photographed navigate those tensions? Because I think that's part of what you were trying to get at with this analysis of street photography. I think that, um, that trying to think about notions of the invisible um, are not kind of confined to street photography, but I think really, again, is something that 
all of the practices that I look at, I think, have in common. Um, an unvisibility in many, uh, in the way that I'm describing it and the way that um, Ellison was using it is not this sense of the invisible, but it's the things that are not seen. And so um, across the practices that I look at, these are communities that have been confined to kind of urban communities that um, that have certain kind of limits in terms of social mobility and and visibility within kind of more mainstream contexts within the case of Jamaica these are again kind of urban or so-called downtown communities um, that uh, that again are extremely kind of marginalized politically and socially um, that are seen precisely as you know the spaces that um, that don't have uh, through which kind of forms of kind of social kind of capital and kind of national kind of value are, are not coming. Um, and in the case of the Bahamas too, a lot of the groups that are participating within these communities are seen as um, really kind of hijacking what is seen as national kind of culture and kind of cultural values and their kind of practices are, are, are kind of policed in ways that um, you would think that prom practices of kind of youth would not be, you know, something that the Ministry of, of uh, Youth Sports and, um, yeah, that, that like ministers, you know, within um, governments are, are sitting down and really kind of anxious over these practices. So in every instance, um, these kind of public insertions of visibility are taking place within these contexts in which um, these populations are, are kind of extremely kind of marginalized and kind of unseen in the way that, and unvisible in the way that Allison was uh, articulating. Yeah, I think with all of these practices, it really, I really changed my mind so much about um, about the way that I thought about them and the, the very many layers that they all have. So with um, with video light. I found that chapter really interesting in this kind of image of bright light in the darkness, looking at people performing for the camera. It was very, I was transfixed. So you look at that in particular in Jamaica and dancehall culture. And I come to dancehall culture mostly by analyses of the sonic. So, and I'm thinking in particular of say Carolyn Cooper or Julian Enriquez, for instance, who focused on the sonic and the body. And so I'm wondering how, thinking about light and video light and the, the visual adds to that literature. Right. I think, um, I think 
one of the kind of interesting things that is kind of pointed to in the book, but perhaps less so in this chapter, um, is the way that that um, the light within the context of the dance halls produces something kind of in excess of visibility, um, you know, through its brightness, through its blinding. And in a subsequent chapter, I try to kind of think about this notion of like the sound of light, but I do feel like there's something that is happening within the space of the dance halls too, in which the video light is kind of tuning into, um, into this kind of notion of the kind of excess, um, the kind of effective dimensions of the visual, which I think have these really interesting parallels with the way that sound is functioning in the dance halls. And so, um, um, I don't know if you've been to kind of dance halls and have been anywhere near the speakers that are really set up to mark this kind of temporary kind of space. But there's something about being in that environment where you don't hear music, you kind of feel it. Mm-hmm. And I feel that the video light is this interesting kind of visual technology that works in a similar way in that you don't just see video light. It is something that becomes um, embodied of the body that becomes kind of felt um, and felt in a way that you get a sense of the very, uh, you're, you kind of push the limits of how you're thinking about, about kind of visibility in that process in, in a similar way that I feel that, that when you're thinking about sound within that space, that, that there's something similar going on. Um, but I do think there's been a lot of really rich work that has been done in terms of thinking about the lyrics within kind of dance hall culture, thinking about the kind of sonic space uh, that is set up, um, thinking about kind of fashion within that space too. Um, but I was struck by the way that with some exceptions, and I'm thinking here of like Donna Hope's work or um, Sonia Stanley Naya's work, where they start to talk about how the camera entered into that space. I wanted to kind of foreground that because I feel that it's something that has so transformed kind of what is taking place within that space Mm -hmm. um, that I wanted to kind of give it a certain centrality that, that I feel that because of the traditional kind of focus on, um, on music or on fashion, that we were somehow missing this uh, kind of huge reorientation that had really happened within the space of dance hall. Once the camera uh, became so central. And so, you know, a couple dancers that I interviewed even said that they thought the camera was more important than the music. Mm. Um, and yeah, so I, I, you know, would hate to somehow put those things in, in to some kind of context, contest with each other. But I do feel that, 
that um, a part of what the project wanted to do was to pay attention to what this camera was and what it was doing and how it was functioning within this space. Well, yeah, I, I, I think that you make a very beautiful point that there are, you have to think about them both together. And actually, one of the things that's really interesting about that chapter is your discussion of the way that produces these videos that then circulate around, not just in Jamaica, but elsewhere, kind of internationally. Uh, they get posted in different places, and so that becomes this kind of product that's generated in dance hall and, and takes up, has a life of its own. I really like thinking about that, too. Right. Yeah. And I feel that this kind of translation um, through these technologies and the kind of noise, again, almost coming <laughs> to think about um, the way that the visual technology is intersecting with how we might think about sound, but thinking about like the visual noise, too, that is created as these um, as this footage of the dance halls gets kind of taken up and translated across different technologies and across kind of space um, and what happens in the kind of viewership of that um, material um, and what kind of viewer it produces um, at the end of the day is also uh, something that I was really interested in thinking about. Right. And speaking of the sound of light, I was going to ask you a little bit later, but um, bling, the notion of bling runs throughout the book. Um, and actually, the, the next chapter on the prom entrances deepens the analysis a little bit. And I love that you noted that the sound, the bling is has been called the sound of light hitting a diamond, right? Um, and it's kind of perfect for, for, for what you're trying to do in the book. But maybe we can talk about these prom entrances because they are also an example of what you were talking about in terms of the excessiveness of, of it all, right? right. They're about being seen, being represented, and was really intriguing to to see that some of the prom goers are really in, into sort of being photographed, but they don't want the photographs. They just want to be seen being photographed, right? Right, um, right. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. No, I mean, it was really... Um, striking to me. And again, I almost started um, kind of documenting and coming to the proms without a sense of uh, knowing that, that it was something that I wanted to work on more extensively. But um, when I was in Nassau for a few of the prom seasons, um, I remember you know, just talking to people about these proms and they were really fascinated. And, and a, a part of the project too is not only about the visual event, but then how the visual event takes all these different forms. And one of the forms it takes is the kind of production and the re-performance of what takes place at the proms through kind of oral histories. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the proms that had been really kind of made a splash uh, when I first started doing my work was a prom involving this kind of young woman who had staged this kind of paparazzi kind of entrance. And so she, um, so a lot of the proms too take place within the context of these kind of large hotels within Nassau. Um, some of which are actually, um, 
hotels that that you can't even go into as locals um, on other other times of the year, right? So in any case, in this particular kind of prom entrance, she had hired um, photographers to line the red carpet for her. Um, she drove up, um, gets out onto the red carpet, and basically has this kind of uh, uh, fan overzealously um, kind of coming toward her. Um, And so her date kind of winds up kind of coming up and really kind of rescuing her kind of within this scene. And they kind of go into the the prom together. Um, But the interesting thing was that in order to stage the paparazzi scene, she had actually hired like real photographers, um, one of whom I interviewed who worked for the local newspaper who was there. And when I finally kind of caught up with her and and, um, interviewed her about the event and asked her for the photographs, she was like, oh, you know, um, I don't have photographs or, um, and wasn't really aware of whether the photographers had actually been taking photographs or not. And so it just kind of struck me, um, you know, so there's one thing to kind of stage the scene with people who are not photographers. And there's another thing to want the authenticity of that red carpet and the authenticity of the presence of that camera. Um, but to not be interested in the kind of material um, kind of photographic kind of remain or, or art, artifact. And so this whole sense of really staging the photographic and the fact that it was really the importance of being seen to be photographed and the effect of this particular moment of having um, all of these photographers really centered on her that were really important within this kind of choreographed um, uh, prom entrance. And so a part of that chapter is just looking at the investment of these kind of different performances um, and looking at what some of the kind of broader reactions um, to these forms have been, but also trying to <laughs> trying to look at the proms, but to look at spectacles of consumption that are taking place more broadly within Bahamian society that are not criticized, um, you know, by the government or within the newspapers. Um, as the proms are, um, and pointing out that in some of these entrances, people are actually borrowing cars from, you know, people who own these cars and drive around in them every day. Um, so there's just something about a broader, um, a broader sense of what brings prestige within everyday Bahamian society that I feel the proms kind of get us to kind of think about and that they dramatize, um, but in this way that, you know, the everyday displays of wealth kind of don't get the criticism that uh, these kind of young people do in their interest in staging these kinds of, of performances. Yeah, it really turns things upside down, I thought, in very interesting ways. And one of your moves throughout the book actually, is to take the tradition of representation and representation of Black people, um, which has a history of being exploitative, and you talk a lot about that in your first book, um, and to really turn it inside out into an expression of kind of critique and empowerment. 
Um, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that and the way that you, you do that in the book. Um, I think, I think a lot of what I wanted to do in this book was to kind of focus seriously on these expressions. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, that just within the photographic archives that exist within the Caribbean context, at least, these expressions or even the photo studios that existed surrounding Black populations, um, there's very little uh, archival remains. And people just didn't think these expressions were important at all. So I feel that one of the very simple ambitions of the book is really to say, you know, people are investing in these um, in these expressions. They have this real kind of social and aesthetic importance, and and I want to value them uh, enough and to kind of give them the space, you know, within this kind of broader discourse of art history to kind of take seriously these forms um, that are typically not are are precisely defined as not having any cultural art or artistic kind of value. Um, and so I wanted to play with the way that um, these kind of forms are kind of taken up and kind of re-scripted towards kind of different ends. Um, and I think, too, the chapter kind of dealing with video light, in which I come to see the the bleached skin, which becomes popular at a certain point within um, dance hall practice. Um, and I want to think about this interest in bleaching skin as both a response to the history of photographic technologies that have really been geared toward um, picturing kind of white skin and it, as its norm. And so it's both a kind of conformity to that technology, um, but a technology in its own right, in which the lighting of of skin through chemicals and bleaching, I suggest, is the way of kind of making the body into its own kind of photographic technology in which both the subject and the matter of the photographic kind of come together. Um, and so I think I was less interested in a kind of resistive or seeing these practices as a part of our kind of resistance, mm -hmm. because I feel like in almost every instance, there's so much kind of going on mm -hmm. that it is both a kind of conscription and this um, kind of radical transformation that's going on kind of at the same time. And so, you know, to both um, bleach one's skin <laughs> is uh, in response to the technology and to be invested in what that technology, what you think that technology can do for you in this really intimate way in terms of one's own um, bodily transformation, one's own 
kind of subjectivity, right? Um, and to invest in that way, but then in that process, um, in that process of recognition about what this technology is and how one can, how one, if you one understands how it makes visible and what those possibilities are, then you can kind of do something else with it. And so I feel that in almost every instance, whether it's, you know, the proms or the kind of interest in kind of performing and being invested in a bling bling kind of culture, there's both this kind of reflection um, on, you know, the status of kind of things and what it means to be a subject within this highly consumer oriented society, uh, what it means to be a subject in this society that is so focused on one's kind of visual presence and performance for cameras. And so I feel like I wanted to tell a kind of complicated story about how these technologies come to be kind of taken up. Um, but I see them as resting somewhere between um, between dealing with a kind of hegemonic uh, kind of histories of these kind of technologies and practices, um, but not wanting uh, to paint too romanticized a view about what these practices kind of do either. Um, but again, kind of coming back to this notion of shine, right? And just seeing shine as this historical figure that allows a certain perspective on these things that are going on within society more generally. So what does it mean to take a kind of Black youth subject and their visual practices as a lens for thinking more critically about um, a whole set of broader issues that are really impacting society kind of more generally from celebrity culture to materialism to photography and the movement of photographic technologies. Yeah, I mean, in a way, you just answered my final question, which is that I wanted to ask you about the way the book kind of hovers between hypervisibility and disappearance. And I got the feeling that the book wanted to create a space, for, a bigger space for that hovering so that it, it is more complex, as you say, and more and not just about sort of resistance or exploitation, but about, in a way, creating something outside of those um, and offering new ways to understand consumption and art and representational practices and all of these kinds of other things. But before I let you go, I'm going to ask you just one final question about hip hop, because we haven't talked about that yet. And I was really interested in the way, again, you kind of turn it on its head and think about um, the visual aspects of hip hop, which are which are really central, as you make you you argue very, very powerfully. And that chapter really made me think of um, Alexander Wehelia's work. And it's related to what you were just saying in the sense that he turns from the visual, which he sees as kind of constraining to the sonic, and he sees in the sonic a kind of more um, generative um, uh, space. But, um, but then you, you bring the visual back 
in a way that articulates critique rather than capitulation. And so you kind of turn him, you turn on his own sort of criticism of the visual. And I'm wondering how, how you would respond to my interpretation of that. No, I think, um, and I think in the fourth kind of chapter, you know, I do kind of draw on his work. Um, and this kind of sense of the histories through which kind of blackness um, has really been constrained. And so really seeing African diasporic aesthetic practices as constantly in this um, negotiation of and rejection about the way that the visual has really overdetermined the kind of meaning of, of blackness. Um, but I do think that, you know, in the ways that I talked about before, just in terms of like excess um, and trying to think about, you know, um, and again, to return to kind of Bee Gees, uh, you know, the statement attributed to BG about him talking about bling as being like the sound of light. Mm. Um, but just, again, kind of pushing what the boundaries of the visual are, right? So that somehow in these practices, if you can push the boundaries of what the visual are or what the photographic are, that it leads to somehow this expanded kind of possibility for kind of black being. Um, and I feel like in, um, I feel like that, that there's a certain kind of correlation with kind of thinking about sound as this, uh, as this expression that allows kind of blackness to take a form outside of the certain kind of containers of visuality. I feel like these practices that have precisely pushed at the limits of how we think about vision and its boundaries or how we kind of dwell on kind of, you know, the point of blindness uh, kind of produced within a lot of these practices, that it's precisely about kind of being and pushing the visual to allow for these other forms of expression and kind of Black subjectivity. Um, thank you. It's a wonderful book. And I've really enjoyed the conversation. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me. Great. Thank you. Thanks again. It's, yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to New Books in Latin American Studies. See you next time.